Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about Lean, Agile, and the evolution of software development. We'll look at why the Agile transformation is more about transformation than it is about Agile, why engineers need to think like business line owners for Agile to have maximum impact, and the concept of using information radiators to inform your development team and influence your product roadmap. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Elliot Susel, Head of Product for Paid Services at AOL. In his role at AOL, Elliot leads a team that performs lean startup style concept validation and delivers products using agile methodologies. He previously spent two years at Curb, formerly known as Taxi Magic, as a senior project manager and VP of technology. While there, he partnered the technology organization with the business side of the house to ensure that all engineering work was tied to business wants and needs. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about Agile and Lean and what the difference is between them, if there is any. So for listeners out there that may not be familiar with the concepts, what are Agile and Lean and what would you say is the difference between them? So um, even taking a step back from that, sure, the definitions matter so much. Um, people use the words Agile and Lean, and we may even use them in conversation together, but we may actually have completely different understandings of what they mean. So I'm using the word Agile, you're using the word Agile. We think that we understand each other in our conversation, but actually we fundamentally don't. We're like talking about two different things. So right. um, for our conversation today, I would say that when I use Agile, I'm referring to the Agile methodology, which is typically referring to how you deliver software iteratively. Um, and when I refer to Lean, there are actually several Lean movements. What we mean here is Lean Startup. Um, lean is generally focused on eliminating, eliminating waste to in also increase efficiency and consistency. So um, Lean Startup, is how you do that with technology. Mm -hmm. um, there's another movement, uh, you know, Lean Six Sigma and Lean Manufacturing that is, in this case, not what we're referencing. Okay, got it. So is, is Lean, would you say Lean is like a subset of Agile almost or a way to practice Agile? Ooh, so good question, good distinction. I would say Lean Startup is what you use to figure out what is worth building. Mm -hmm. And Agile is how you then go build that functionality iteratively. Okay. Got it. So, so there was a great quote from a slide in a presentation you gave not long ago that was called the unspoken truths of agile transformations. And it was your agile transformation is not about agile. It's about transformation. So why is it important for business leaders that may be interested in, in switching over to agile to understand this? So um, this is funny because the mechanics of Agile are actually super simple, but chances are in your Agile transformation, you'll mess up even the mechanics. Mm -hmm. What's hard about Agile is actually managing people's emotions as they go through change. And when, especially when folks who have been doing technology for a really long time and, and have been bu building software for a while, you ask them to suddenly completely change the way they think about the problem they may not only have a hard time making that shift, but they may resist it, and they mm -hmm. may resist it pretty fiercely mm -hmm. um, and, and in some cases feel threatened. So 
you know, the agile transformation, the mechanics are, are so simple. Um, and especially with something like Scrum, which is a very prescribed way of doing agile, um, the mechanics are actually almost like a given. Like, a, you know, a, a software programmer that looks at Scrum, they would say, oh, well, the rules are really simple. Like, it's black and white. Um, but as people's thoughts about it evolve, managing the way they interact with the development team and the problem that you're solving, that's the hard part. Okay, got it. And, and can you talk a little bit more about Scrum as like a kind of, you said it's a very black and white, very prescriptive thing. What does what, what Scrum entail? Perfect question. So um, I'll use a metaphor. So Agile is a rectangle and Scrum is a square. Scrum is a set of Agile practices that are very prescribed and in conjunction, when, when done together, are known to work really, really well for many teams. Mm -hmm. So um, some of those practices include uh, the ceremonies that you have, the roles that you have, uh, and the documents that you create. Okay, got it. So, so let's talk about your role at AOL a little bit. One of the things you've been tasked with doing at AOL is bringing that lean startup mentality that you talked about or lean startup practices to a large organization. What are some of the challenges you've seen in changing established mindsets there, and how have you gone about doing it? So uh, there are several core challenges that uh, we sort of ran into immediately, and I think most large organizations will have to wrestle with. The first is that most companies are meant to keep you in the building. And in the lean startup movement, we sort of advocate having one-on-one face-to-face -on -one conversations with your customers so you can learn very, very quickly whether or not uh, do they really want to buy this thing we're going to go build. Mm -hmm. um, and so fundamentally, we're dealing with environments that isolate us from our customers rather than integrate us with our customers. Mm -hmm. So that is, I'd say, first and foremost, one of the mo most significant challenges you have to go solve. Um, in fact, I would even say the ideal workplace is like sitting on top of right where your customers are all the time so you can go interact with them. Um, the next challenge at a, a large company that I think needs solving is sort of managing the telephone game. Mm -hmm. So often companies have different divisions. There's QA, there's, you know, your design group and all these different folks, marketing focused on solving specific types of problems. But if you want to be particularly like innovative and, and solve challenging problems, you actually want that diverse team to be working together and to be isolated from everybody else in some ways so that they can go focus on a specific problem together. Mm -hmm. So building um, almost, I think other groups do call it this, like innovation colonies, groups that have all the different skills that they need, have the right incentives to go be innovative and solve interesting challenges. How you create that environment is very tricky. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I would say that Resolving old habits, this ties back to like agile transformations are more about the transformation piece. Sure. Um, working through old habits is really challenging. And the example I will give there uh, is around focus groups. Um, historically, focus groups have been like the, the, the tried and true way of trying to understand how your customers think. Um, and it's almost in, in the lean startup movement, it's, it's almost like a joke, the idea that a focus group is a meaningful use of time. And that's in part because running a really good, like, meaningful focus group where you learn a lot, that's hard to do. 
there are people who, you know, they get like, I think a PhD to go do that. Right. And, and so like, there's no way I'm going to run a focus group correctly. So don't even try, but I've been having one-on-one face-to-face conversations my whole life Right. that I can probably figure out how to do. So, um, that's something that's sort of been interesting to work through is changing this mindset of if we want to learn from our customers, let's have a focus group to if we want to learn from our customers, we need to give the developers, the testers, the product managers, the designers, every single person on that team time to leave the building and talk with customers or to bring the customers to us, but in a one-on-one face-to-face conversation. Yeah. So, so let me ask about the kind of team structure and setup that you mentioned, because you talked about setting up kind of innovation colonies that have the ability to go off and, and, and work on their own. So is it literally like taking all the people you just mentioned and putting them in a room and being like, okay, you guys work together and build a product and, you know, all talk to one another while you're doing it. So there's no kind of creation of silos and, you know, and, and waste of time. I, I would, oh, this is a tricky one. So different companies are solving this in very different ways. And it's not like there's a, a right way per se and a wrong way. Right. There's more like, what are the elements that will make this successful? So for example, the way that Intuit solves this problem is they have lean startup training where they teach people how to figure out what their customers really want. And then they give them 10% of their time to do whatever it is that they want to go do. And on top of that, they even have a system, which is now, I think, something that they sell that pairs people who have identified a problem and, and think they've validated it as being a real problem that needs solving mm-hmm. with people who have the skills that want to go solve those sorts of problems. So mm-hmm. it's, like you, it's like a matching system. It's like, hey, I think I've found this real problem. Does anyone want to work on it with me? And, and they've, they've made that their way. Sure. Um, other companies do it very differently. I think that shielding... Uh, the right set of people, which includes developers, designers, and and your product manager at a minimum, um, is a really great way to then sort of create an environment that they can go explore, um, learn a whole bunch of stuff, and work together to try to solve a problem. Okay, so so let me ask you about something you mentioned in uh, in, in that answer. You were talking about, or in the previous answer, rather, you were talking about focus groups and how the idea seems a little bit old-fashioned and it's not something you necessarily practice in, in the Agile world. Um, but there is a way that you can kind of measure whether or not what you have put into place is working to kind of confirm or validate ideas. So, so one of the things that you and a previous guest on this podcast, Gil House, have talked about in a presentation that you gave I thought was super interesting, and it and it was this, or or, or there were a few bullets rather. So they were uh, every development request has a goal, every goal has quantification, code review includes analytics, and every deployment requires hooks to monitoring and analytics tools. So how do you ensure that these things actually kind of happen in the development process? And how do you instill a culture where developers are more than just developers, but also kind of businessmen and businesswomen? So I, I love this question. And um, the I'll share a quote. Uh, my favorite blogger, um, financial blogger, his name is Ramit Sethi. And he says, and, and maybe he's a little heavy handed when he says this, but he says that losers have goals and winners create systems. Now, it's not that goals aren't important, but the thing is, like, how often have you heard someone make a New Year's resolution that they never achieve, right? It's a yeah. goal without a system. Sure. And so, you know, the system sort of sets yourself up 
to be successful in executing against a goal. So we had this goal uh, when we were at Curb, which was to build things that were relevant and meaningful. And so how do we instrument that? How do, how do we create a system, rather, that lets us make sure that we achieve that? And so each of those steps along the way made sure that, like, you know, when we build something, there is purpose to it. And that purpose, we can quantify. Mm-hmm. And when we do that quantification, we're not just coming up with, wouldn't it be great to know this sort of a number? We actually then make sure that it it was coded <laughs> to right. track that. Um, and that happens in sort of the code review. But then also, you know, after you go live with it, the person who pushes the code to production watches the, the metric as now data is coming in that's related to it. So um, how, do we, how did we create that system? We had team rules. They were followed. And if they weren't followed, it was caught in code review. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you didn't even have to catch it in code review because we had built some amount of automation that's, that would you know, go in and revert your code if it wasn't following the rules. Um, and so that's particularly related to like test code coverage. That's, that's a really good one. Um, if you, if you want to deploy code quickly, you need to have the right amount of test coverage. And so if you don't have that coverage or you're not building it into, you know, the part of your system that helps you do all of these things, um, you run into trouble. Yeah. And, and without getting too deep into the nuts and bolts, I, you know, I would imagine most listeners are probably familiar with tools like Google Analytics, which you can use to track behaviors on a website and, and within mobile apps. Were there other tools like Splunk or something that you used to kind of ensure that everything was tied to a business goal? Yep. What we used at Curb uh, was New Relic. Okay. And um, we were using that primarily because it also has this sort of technology performance side of things that we were very interested in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my role there was specifically from the technology side of things. So not only did we need to know um, what's happening, like are people using this feature, um, but also what impact is that having on our systems and, mm-hmm. and our load and, and all of those sorts of things. So um, we were looking at it from that angle. There are other, other tools that are really great to layer on top specifically for understanding, you know, what our customers doing. Uh, I know AOL is, is very invested in using Omniture, um, mm-hmm. and Mixpanel is another tool that's very good. Okay, got it. So let me ask you about the, the quote-unquote three-ring theory that you and Gil of uh, Innovation Engine episode 39 fame covered in the Unspoken Truths of Agile Transformation presentation. So what is the idea that the three ring theory puts forward? So this is, this is cool and all. Actually, I get to tell a story with this one. So <laughs> um, imagine sort of a bullseye and the outer ring represents your leadership group. Right. The middle ring represents your business group and the inner circle is your technologists. And as you move toward the center, you're getting closer and closer to where your technology solutions are actually delivered. And as you move further out of the bullseye, you're getting more close to the strategic direction and where that's coming from. And so in this three-ring theory, um, what what Gil and I observed and, and why we created this theory is that you often hear about companies that, that step back and they're like, you know, things aren't working the way we want them to. There's a technology problem. Our technology is not, not working correctly. We have all these bugs and all these other issues, it takes too long to deploy code, whatever, whatever the complaints are, right? So we're going to hire some whiz-bang technologists to come in and fix these problems. And 
as a, a technologist who's really with it and understands the latest trends, you go in and, and you say, yeah, you know, there are some things we can go fix here. There's a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, you can probably be heads down just delivering technology things for quite some time, many months. Uh, that includes continuous integration and deployment, metrics and instrumenting all of those things. And as you start to build in these practices, you get a lot of praise and your business leaders are like, this is great. And, and your leadership is like, this is great. Things are, you know, clearly we're making these technology improvements. But then your leadership steps back and they're going, but why aren't we making more money yet? And so um, your leadership starts to push in on the business team. Why aren't we building things that make us more money? And your engineers, well, they, are, they, already, they already know what the problem is because they've instrumented everything. They have metrics now. And they're looking at it and they're going, yeah, we're not making money because we keep building features that nobody's using, <laughs> right? And so this is uh, something that Gil and I sort of call the squeeze where your, your inner ring, your technologists are pushing out on your business team because they're like, hey, give me something meaningful to build. And your leadership is pushing in on your business team going, guys, why aren't the numbers improving? Um, and that creates potentially a very uh, confrontational and, and sort of scary situation for your business team because they're like, ah, what's happening, right? Uh, and I think the world is much more aware of Agile and is like, oh, yeah, you know, if you're not doing Agile, like, oh, we should go do that. And that'll improve our technology delivery. But most folks are not aware of the lean startup movement and how it can in at least help you make better decisions about what's even worth building. And so I would argue that at the time that you're starting to think about your agile transformation, you also need to start thinking about your lean startup transformation, right? And and yeah, there's sort of a misnomer there. Lean lean startup isn't just for startups, it's really for any anyone who's trying to make a better decision about what it is they want to go build. Yeah. Uh, you, you were talking about the lean startup um, approach or strategy that companies need to figure out what theirs is. One of the things you talk about uh, in some presentations is the importance of validated learning. In fact, you call it a startup's most valuable commodity. So what is, quote unquote, validated learning and why is it so valuable? That's a really important question to ask. So uh, validated learning is the sort of the process by which you establish a hypothesis, create an experiment, execute the experiment, collect some data, and then draw insights. And really what I've sort of just described is the scientific method. Mm -hmm. Let's actually try to be a little bit scientific about what we go build and, and how we figure out what's even worth building. So um, validated learning is when you step through in that, in that sort of structured way to figure out if something is worth doing. Now mm -hmm. contrast that, um, a pivot, this is another really good term, a pivot is when you change your mind based on some validated learning. So if we went in assuming one thing, learned something else, we may pivot our focus into that other thing. Um, but when, uh, and this is helpful to think about, when someone um, collects some data but hasn't really structured an experiment or organized it in this way and they change focus, that's not actually a pivot where you're making a change based on something you've learned that, that's meaningful and valuable. That's mm -hmm. actually just changing your mind. Right. <laughs> right. So it's not bad to change your mind per se, but it's also not particularly scientific in figuring out whether or not it's worth pursuing. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me ask about information radiators because they're also something that gets a, a good bit of play in your presentations that you give in the area. What are information radiators and how do you use them? 
So an information radiator helps disseminate information. It is a physical display mm -hmm. that contains whatever it is you want to include that's relevant to the people and let's say in your office. Mm -hmm. So um, when we were at when I was at Curb, we had a number of information radiators scattered throughout the office. Practically, that means LCD displays, or even, you know, if you don't have money to, to do that, just like monitors you're not even using, right? And, and like a Raspberry Pi and something hooked up that just connects to a web display. It can be really simple, but something that is conveying relevant information. And something that I like to joke about is that if you give me 100 reports, that are all super important, I will read zero reports. <laughs> and so um, you put the data that you want people to be looking at onto the information radiator, but they almost encounter it just by being in the environment, right? You don't have to make them go out of their way to read a report. It's actually just there in front of them. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about this is that if you're monitoring stuff that's important, like, you know, customer support complaint volume or crashes, like app crashes or, you know, those sorts of things, you don't have to be the developer that, that wrote the code to understand when there's a problem. You walk by a graph, the graph looks funky. You say, wait a minute, this, this graph has like our, whatever the important metric is, like, you know, our uptime, our, our, our crashes and, and like the number spiked, it's gone way up. Like, is anybody working on that? Like, I'm going to go talk to somebody. And in fact, on our information radiators, not only did we have the most important metrics, but we had listed who was on call at that moment. So if there was a problem, you knew exactly who you needed to call or talk to to see if it was getting looked at. Yeah, okay, nice. So so let's talk about some of the tactical nuts and bolts of Agile and Lean, um, because I think it's safe to say that many people out there would like their companies to be able to build, measure, and learn faster than they currently can. So if you don't mind sharing, how many times a day does your organization at AOL deploy new builds? AOL is interesting because I'm still relatively new there. I've been there about four months, and we're still figuring out what the right system is mm -hmm. uh, for, for the group that I'm working with. I think more interesting is maybe when I was at Curb. Mm -hmm. um, we went from one deployment every two weeks uh, in a fairly regular and measured way uh, to deploying code whenever we felt like it over 20 times a week. Okay. And so that is like a huge change, like once every two weeks to 20 times a week on average, right? And some weeks were more, some weeks were less. Um, huge change. And, you know, we did that by, by making some pretty fundamental changes to the way that we approached work. And a, a part of that is the system we were talking about earlier, how you sort of instrument everything. Mm -hmm. um, but a couple things worth mentioning uh, for us, uh, GitHub Flow was very transformational. Um, we were getting a lot of complaints about developers having collisions as they were writing code. And that's in part because our architecture was not optimal. Mm -hmm. um, we had what's often called a monolithic uh, legacy architecture uh, where there's these very unwieldy large swaths of code where if I want to change something and deploy it, I might mess up the other thing that somebody else is working on. And so by using GitHub Flow, we were able to prevent all of those changes from getting bundled together, which made it really complicated to go deploy code. Um, along those lines, if you focus on making more bite-sized pieces that can go to production, you can deploy them more quickly and, mm -hmm. and with a, a lot more flexibility. Because now all of a sudden, we aren't deploying you know, 
a dozen or two dozen features and fixes, we're actually deploying a part of a single feature that's just laying the framework for what it's going to go do. What makes that so beautiful is that, like, gee, if there's a problem, you know exactly where that problem was. Um, and so, you know, a complaint that often then comes up is, but it's really difficult to deploy to production. It's a pain in the butt. Like, you got to involve all these people and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, if you have the right testing and test automation in place, it's actually not all that hard. Um, and if you have the right tooling in place, uh, you can actually deploy and revert code at the push of a button. And, you know, there, uh, you, um, you may want to question how uh, with it you are if you have not seen a picture of furry animals pushing buttons to deploy code on the internet. <laughs> it's like, that was like a thing in the, the community for a long time. It's like, we've automated all our stuff. So all you, you could have even a little kitten push a button and it deploys our code, right? It's so simple. And it, and it fundamentally should be, right? Like, you don't want people's, you know, expensive uh, brain power and, and talent and, and all of that going to the tasks that are trivial, that, that maybe they have to do every day, but are really, like, don't require a whole lot of brilliant thought. It, mm -hmm. It's more mechanical in nature. Those are great things to automate. And that then frees them up to think about the things that, that actually matter. Um, so that, that was really essential in going from one deployment every two weeks to <laughs> 20 deployments. In a any given week, and um, but, so let me ask: if you are, you mentioned that it's easy to to know, like if you if you're pushing frequently, you know what broke something, right? But what if it, say you push three times in a day, and the code that actually broke it was like the on the first push, and you don't notice it until the third? How, how do you? I guess I, I don't know. I'm not a coder, right? But yep, how do yep. you know that it was actually with the first push, but not the second or the third? Beautiful. And so I'm not a coder either. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I'm not particularly technical at, at all. Um, but I I found myself in this position where I was an acting VP of technology, and I didn't have to know the way. My developers knew the way, mm -hmm. and I sort of got out of their way and let them, you know, uh, both explain. Here's what I think we should do. Here's why. And like it, make, it made sense, and so we went and we did it. But yep. um, the way that you know, without being very technical, what's going on is your instrumentation. And so in New Relic, you would be able to see when the problem started and, and when the, the error messages started to show up. Um, so even if you didn't catch it when it went live, you could then say, okay, we know we had three deployments today. Let's look at when errors are spiking, mm -hmm. right? And you could sort of go back and see, oh, like they sort of spike around this time. And if you were really worried and you were like, gosh, there were three deployments today and we don't know which one, you know, goofed things up, revert them all. Easy, right? And it and it was only a single day's worth of deployments and most of them might not have even, even been features that were going live. They may have just been rails that you were slowly putting in place to make a feature go live. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, um, something that was very powerful that we did is... Why, like, okay, push-button deployments are super cool, but um, what, if, what if we could create a situation where you don't have to revert the code at all? Why, why revert code if we don't have to? Can we make it even more simple than that? And it turns out you can. Um, the way you do this is with feature flags. So it's, it is a fundamentally simple thing to understand. You essentially flag the feature in the code so it's either on or off. And in the database, you have a little thing that's like, is it on or is it off? And so you just change it in the database to be on or off instead of reverting the deployment. 
And so that's even faster, right? Right. Like you just shut down the feature that we think might be a problem. Don't revert the code yet. We'll, we'll do our problem solving. And we may not even revert the code. In this case, it's sort of rolling forward, if you will. Mm -hmm. You then solve the problem, change the code, push to, push to your test environments, test it, push to production. Yeah. And I guess in the old way of doing things, if you'd waited two weeks and then delivered a build, you may have had much more code to go through to try to figure out where the actual issue was. That, that's exactly right. It, it's hard to see what changed. And when you're using, you know, we were using something, a, a tool called GitHub Flow, which mm -hmm. is a process. We were also using GitHub, which is a tool. And, and that tool is very good at showing you sort of the difference between two sets of code. And if that difference is really small, because again, it's just one tiny thing you're deploying, it's really easy to see where the problem is. Like you don't have to be a genius engineer. And it's funny because and like you you find these work environments where people are like super high performers because they can like sort through swaths of messy code and find the one thing that was the problem. But like I would argue the really high performing engineer creates a situation where they don't have to. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so so we're running a little low on time, Elliot. Any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking to make the transformation to agile or lean in their own companies? So my, my sort of parting thought is that you can have the most beautiful technology delivery system in the world, but if you're building the wrong things, it ultimately doesn't matter. And so yes, the agile transformation is important, now is also the time when I think you should start to think about how you're going to also improve uh, the identification and sort of selection of what things you go build and what, what's even worth building. Lean Startup and, and that methodology is a way. There are other ways. Um, Lean Startup is my favorite. But if you don't start to think about that at the same time that you start to think about Agile, you may find yourself in a situation down the road where your leadership is pushing in on your business team, your engineers are pushing out on your business team going, hey, can we build something that's meaningful? And at that point, it, it's sort of so far down the road. Couldn't we have prevented this sooner? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, great advice. A great note to close on, Elliot. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to talk with you about Agile, Lean, and the evolution of software development. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. If you'd like to connect with Elliot Susel or learn more about any of the presentations we discussed today, they're all available on his LinkedIn profile. You can also follow him on Twitter at at Elliot Susel. That's at E-L-L-I-O-T S-U-S-E-L. Thanks once again to Elliot Susel for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Next week, we'll be taking a breather from podcasting, but we'll be back in two weeks on Groundhog Day, Monday, February 2nd, with an episode featuring best-selling author Nir Ayal. He'll be joining us to talk about his book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, which was published in November and debuted on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. We'll talk about the four-step process to building products that keep users coming back, how to take external triggers and turn them into internal triggers, and the importance of properly framing rewards to drive the behaviors you want. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global. 
a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.